This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I wanted to start out by actually asking you to comment on that narrative because it is a narrative that we hear from the people, but it's also the narrative that the film presents us with. So I wanted to ask you to reflect on that and, and whether it captures something essential about the, the Harlan County that you've experienced. That's a wonderful question. Mm-hmm. And it's wonderful to think that the work that you're doing here at the Bloom Center is connecting questions of poverty and history. Because uh, one of the remarkable things about this film in, is the way it, it's able because of some very complicated and often very dangerous filmmaking, Mm. to really listen to not just the the surface of the story, but some of the deeper levels to it. And one of the things that comes out so clearly is again and again, when people talk about what's happening in 1972, they're also, they, they go back to the 1930s. And you can just feel in an almost visceral way that the prof- profound trauma that happened during a time of violent, violent suppression of the labor movement that was not only uh, involved direct shootout battles, and the most, one of the most famous was just up the road from Brookside mm-hmm. at Everett, Everett's, um, but also involved an element of terrorism. So it wasn't just moments like on Blair Mountain in 1921 uh, up in, um, in West Virginia when you had direct armed conflict. And in that case at Blair Mountain, it was 20,000 miners marching and against uh, elements of the US military and police. But it was also a kind of chronic terrorism. So people were just shot at night in kind of random mm-hmm. ways. And I think that the film, because they could get close, so close to listening to what people are saying, and, and you know, like the, the woman, I, I, I forget her name, but the one who stands up and says, they're not going to shoot the union out mm-hmm. of me. Yeah. Um, she was remembering people who were shot back in the 30s, mm-hmm. and the union was killed in Harlan County until this strike. So yeah. Yeah. everything is at stake. Um, well, that's, that's one of the things that I think uh, uh, the film captures this moment so brilliantly, but it also allows the people, the voices, to put together for us, but asks you, uh, us as the audience, to put together right. the longer, the deeper, the historical right. narrative, because you kind of have to figure out that, oh, they have not actually had a union since, since, the, 19, since the 1930s. Yes, and um, the, uh, the, there's an interesting reflection on the making of this film that was done in 2004 with Anne Lewis, who was the assistant filmmaker on mm-hmm. this. And she went on to a very distinguished and important career at the uh, Media Center Apple Shop, which is, the, is a very creative and innovative Appalachian media uh, collective that's done amazing work since the 1960s. Um, but what... When she and Barbara Koppel and Jerry Johnson, who's one of the the young miners, and the daughter of um, the Scott the Scott women, um, oh, what's the first? 
Lois Scott, who's the kind of rabble rouser that pulls the gun out of yes, her, yes. her bra. She's she, great. Yeah. <laughs> they, um, what they said is that if it hadn't been for the film, there would have been more deaths mm. earlier, and that would have been the end of the strike. So the fact that those filmmakers, for three years really, just moved with people in this very gentle way and got so close to the actual action meant that they created a kind of very unusual democratic space because Mm. as I think it was Jerry Johnson, the the miner, said, he said they're not going to murder somebody on, you know, on film. Mm. So it was the film, the filmmaking itself became part of the action. Became part of the action. And I, and and I, you know, some people have said, well, maybe if the filmmakers hadn't been there, then the strike wouldn't have continued, it wouldn't have happened. I don't think that's the way to look at it. Mm-hmm. I think that what the filmmaking did is to create a space where people with dignity and safety, to a certain extent, it was still very dangerous. And obviously the, the one uh, striking minor was killed by a scab, um, but it still created a space for people to, to 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 give voice and to take action and to and and to again talk about the day to dayness yes. of it and to capture to capture that. Um, well, is this a theme that continues to resonate in Harlan so, County today? I mean, do, do you see that? Do you think the people of of, of Harlan County now do you hear them referring to? this tradition, to this experience, to this narrative, identifying with it. Um, and for that matter, is the film something that is kind of still embraced by people in, in Harlan County? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I think that people experience the film in the context of also having a very deep and accurate awareness of all the other media portrayals mm. and the kind of the dehumanizing of the kinds of stereotypes that the region suffers. Mm. So I wouldn't say that people hold this up like we had our moment of glory and, and the problems have been solved in media portrayals. And, you know, it's important to remember that 1972 was when Deliverance came out. And so when Co- Barbara Koppel and the t- uh, crew were making this film, they were pushing against the... Hollywood manufactured, Mm. since this make a connection between California and Kentucky, Mm. the Hollywood manufactured mass media portrayals of the whole region as a kind of white trash, violent, savage land. And it's difficult, it was a real challenge for them, I think, to convey the danger of the situation without making the people themselves look sort of inherently violent. And I, um, I think it's yeah. it's yeah. a very effective filmmaking. And I've looking at the film again. I've been. I think part of this, the reason, the film technique for doing that might be the way they humanized the debates within. I'm yeah. not sure about this, but they did show that there was conflict between different parts, and people were upset that more people weren't turning out on this, 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 yeah. it, at the picket line. Well, people, one of the things the film, of course, has been praised for is that the story unfolds through the voices of the people. Yeah. You don't have 
It is a narrative. Obviously, it's constructed, but it is by someone who edited this film and made choices about who is going to be speaking. But for the most part, big ideas, things about strategies, also what I was saying before, references to history, those are all told through the voices of of people in in kind of everyday conversation. So the film has gotten a lot, and rightly so, um, praise for that. Um, But what does come through um, is that they had to really kind of occupy Mm-hmm. the space, if you will, in mm-hmm. order to be able to, to tell that story. So based on what you know about you know, the physicality of this place, it, clearly it's changed since then, but um, you know, there are some things that are probably similar. What, what's your sense of how they were actually able to occupy occupy that space. The geography is incredibly important because Mm -hmm. the uh, Clover Fork uh, Valley, which is where Brookside is, is a very narrow valley. And um, so, and and I think that they conveyed very well this sort of urgency and danger of kind of moving from um, Brookside up to Aegis, up to High Splint, which is way up this winding valley and much more isolated, so they're in even more danger there. But um, it's, and so that's, that's very powerfully conveyed um, that this is almost like guerrilla warfare, sort of this terrain. And so that's part of, of why it was possible to keep a sort of reign of terror for 100 years in many ways. The, the, uh, what this movie doesn't get into are the more environmental dimensions of the justice struggles. Mm-hmm. And so, but there are a couple moments when you can kind of hear it. Like I noticed right at the beginning, um, as the miners are coming out from, from their shift, you can hear a rooster crowing. Um, and in fact, part of the solidarity of these communities is that when, because jobs were boom and bust and very precarious, people had to have gardens, they had to go up in the mountains, so there was a kind of deep connection to the whole terrain, even though the companies own, like, uh, it's um, about 60% of the land in Harlan County itself is corporate-owned, it's, um, and individual people only have access, even now, to about 20% of the land. So in that sense, the, the, the fundamental disempowerment here is the inequality in land ownership, parallel to coming out of the black lung struggles and the the labor struggles in the early 70s, there was also a really um, challenging environmental justice movement Mm -hmm. as people uh, really tried to to, um, figure out ways to organize uh, to protect the, the waters and the land itself because the this movie focuses on this as a struggle at the point of production, very important, mm. um, especially in an era when in many rural areas there's so few jobs. So we need to be reminded of the of the of this of the nature of this labor struggle. But um, <clears throat> the, what was the lo- sort of larger macro context? is that as the union was building power and really uh, claiming um, medical benefits and pension benefits, that became part of the corporate calculation of their profitability 
And so it was the move to mechanize and just get rid of the workers is mm -hmm. the other side of this story. Right. So once you had better black lung, uh, you know, it, it, right. regulation. And, and, and actual protections. And, yes. And actual pensions. And so right. the, yes. from, from when 77 is when the, the, the film came out, that was also the era of uh, new federal laws that many people believe permitted it, uh, a, a kind of escalating strip mining that culminated in, um, under the Bush administration in the early 2000s mm. in very rapid um, shift to mountaintop removal kind of mining where you, you, need 12, you need 12 people to take down an entire mountain. I, I want to uh, just take a step back to the moment of, of the strike, though, before uh, we, we get into the, the kind of the aftermath. Just to uh, what was going on, you know, um, in the early 70s that actually enabled the strike to come together at that particular moment? Because, again, I think it's such a striking story uh, that this place with these people who talk about having had unionism in mm -hmm. their blood um, was unorganized um, for all that time. And I, I, they, they had a huge and, and very long struggle and violent, as we saw, uh, struggle to, to make it happen. But... What was going on in the early 70s that enabled that to happen? So part of the story is when Barbara Koppel started this, she actually wanted to do a film about the um, Miners for Democracy movement. Mm -hmm. and, you, and so that was the middle part of the film where you saw that um, Yablonsky and other folks were trying to um, fight the deeply corrupt um, leadership which was heavily controlled by, uh, by corporate um, entities, some of which was sort of at the state level, but with the murder of the leader of that democracy movement, at the time, and at a time when the whole country was, you know, um, uh, in the midst of converging social movements, civil rights mm -hmm. movements, women's movement. It was a time when um, there was a kind of cross-fertilization, mm -hmm. I think, between movements. And um, so it, there was a kind of legitimacy, I think, that the UMW had in, in Harlan mm -hmm. because um, when, when the, the, the president of the UMW could come and say, I'm a rank-and-file minor, and... Um, and the, the democratization of the union um, really helped bring the miners in from Virginia and West Virginia, Illinois. Uh, and so I think we have to see the, this struggle as enlivened and supported by a whole range of other very working class kind of movements. Well, so that does, this is a good segue into my next question, which is, um, this is a place, and Appalachia is a place that we don't normally associate with the civil rights movement, civil rights yeah. organizing. Um, you don't see many African Americans in the film, uh, and you see this kind of playful banter that makes you a little bit uncomfortable. Right. Um, so, or may, maybe more than a little bit uncomfortable. Nevertheless, there are, you know, in, in telling the story of, of this film, Barbara Koppel does. Uh, make reference to having had some solidarity and some protection 
actually from civil rights organizers, especially in the aftermath of the film's release when she felt concerned about showing it. Um, so uh, when you talk about democracy mo- movements of the late 60s and early 70s informing this moment, do you include the civil rights movement? Absolutely, absolutely. And you can, there were references to yeah. it in some ways that like when Lois Scott is sort of saying, you know, th- um, these people fighting for, for rights. Um, the, what is unusual about this film is you, you see very few African Americans and actually the population of African Americans and um, people from um, especially Eastern Europe was fairly high in Harlan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the next valley over in Lynch and Benham, Kentucky, there was a very large African American population. Mm-hmm. Um, and with higher rates of outmigration, so now that population is lower, and this is part of this is a problem in many portrayals of the region. So, West Virginia, in many counties, um, it, the African American population was more than fifty percent in mm. some counties. And I'm thinking, I don't know if any of you have seen the film Rocket Boys, which um, was set in McDowell County in, in West Virginia. Um, it was a pretty big, um, um, not a blockbuster, but a, but a popular uh, national film. And it was about something growing up in, in McDowell County. And you don't see any African-Americans in that. So that's mm-hmm. sort of more the Hollywood portrayal. And at the time, McDowell County was over 50% black. Mm-hmm. So there has been a... A, um, a whitewashing. A whitewashing yes. of but the labor so, force. So one is a little surprised that... Yes. That this film um, reinforces that. Yes. Um, but is that is, is it also something going on in the union? Because, you know, historians are familiar with unions right. not exactly being open to African Americans. Um, is that part of what's going on here, do you think? Um, I think that... So I... And I, I can speak about that more from West Virginia because I've done a mm. lot of oral histories mm. in West Virginia's. And... A lot of older African-American miners um, told me there that they found West Virginia the least racist place in, in, in mm-hmm. America. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had a lot to do just with the numbers. So one fellow said to me, he said, you know, we had dynamite, and they knew if we were up and mm-hmm. There was a kind of... Because in the coal camps, there was a kind of equalization and and a certain ideology of equality in the union. Um, but it very, it, it had, the differences had a lot to do with the power structures in the state. And this movie shows really clearly how the, um, there's a kind of, mil, there was a militarization of the police force and the judiciary. And, and it's very clear that in, uh, in, if you look at Harlan, the, 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 one of the coal operators back in the 1930s, uh, I forget the, who it was, but he had this phrase, you need a judicious mixture of, of groups. And what he meant is if you could get uh, sort of an isolated community of African Americans and different, like Eastern Europeans, if you had an ethnic mix... Mm-hmm. You could, they could use that to set up conflict 
and, yeah. and, and break any solidarity. Divide and conquer. Yeah. Yes. So this idea yes. of a judicious mixture. Uh, yes. <laughs> and you can kind of see that. It's an interesting in the... use of words in that particular case. Uh, I mean, one of the things I was struck by, and again, one is struck throughout the film, where, where you have all this structural analysis going on just you know, by filming key things. So, for example, uh, the courtroom scene. It's not yeah. that long. But yeah. so much happens in that courtroom scene. So much gets across when you know they're making references to the the judge being in the pocket of coal and actually you know owning stock in the company, and the judge is just going, just stands up and walks out, and you just feel like you've been told the fix is in, in so many and, words and in a few images, and particularly that the county clerk's son was taking the photographs. Mm-hmm. Because of that was the blacklist. Yeah. Um, and everybody and, knew it. And yes. everybody knew it. Yeah. And they knew that that's what they were putting themselves uh, in yeah. for. So that I think the extent to which there was a kind of um, reign of terror that was tied in with mm-hmm. a corrupt sort of police and judiciary um, is, is a really key part of, uh, of this story. And that's why the role of the women is so yeah. interesting, yeah. because you know this was historic that finally a, a, a fairly big mine in Harlan County was seriously going on strike with this new revitalization of the union, and um, it was about to be broken. And this, the Lois Scott and those couple, Jenny Cruzenberry, I think is her name, formed a women's club. Well, I, I mean, I, I want to talk about the women. I mean, the women were, they are, in, in so many ways, the women dominate this, this yeah. film. They kept the, the picket line going. Yes. Um, at moments, they emerge as more militant than the men, um, certainly in their insistence that we got to fight fire with fire, um, among other things. Um, at the same time, and, and so they really are driving so, so much here. Um, in the film itself, though, they kind of, Remain within their um, womanly yeah. roles. Let's put it. Let's put it that way. You know, you see them taking care of their children, and they are um, shepherding things along. Obviously, they don't have the power to vote. Uh, a lot of decisions that are made that are going to affect their lives are made by the men. So, what about that? That that gender. Yeah. That gender yeah. dynamic. I mean, yeah. and the other thing to mention is that this is the women's movement is. Everywhere, at this particular at this particular moment as well. I, I feel like two things are true, and they sound like they're completely contradictory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's almost like we need to look at this with two lenses simultaneously mm-hmm. to understand what's going on, because um, you can argue that women had a lot of sort of social and moral and. Uh, well, s- social c- power in the coal camps because people were very dependent on these sort of informal economies and mutual support systems, um, and uh, the, the so and the women ha- had a lot of pride in that. They couldn't work paid jobs, but the paid jobs are pretty irregular too. It's boom and bust. Um, and so the women were radically disempowered in that sense. They're very dependent on the wages. The other uh, aspect of this that has not been talked about enough um, and is that 
there's some new uh, writings now where people are finally able to document the extent of sexual harassment and assault that was involved in these coal camps because you've got a situation where the housing and the, the stores and everything are under the control of the companies. And they're... There are stories coming out now of a lot of sexual violence against women, um, where women would basically have to be sex, give sex to various uh, of the, mm-hmm, the sort of mm-hmm. power people in exchange for protection. And, and I feel bad because when I was doing oral histories in southern West Virginia, I never got any of these stories. I mean, there's like a, it's a deep shame about this. Mm-hmm. But Wes Harrison, on your part or on their part? No, I'm, well, they, they're ashamed, and I, I feel, I wonder why I, you know, couldn't, you know, how could we not have gotten that story? Yeah. But Wes Harris has brought out more of that story. And so mm. I, um, and when they were talking about not going up too early to the strike, before, you know, there, there was always, there's, everybody was afraid of violence, but... Um, but on the other hand, um, there is a kind of, I think there is a kind of different kind of feminism here, which is maybe hard to, it's a kind of working class feminism where the role in the household is really embraced mm-hmm. as a full-time role. And um, it's it, where it's not a kind of, liberal feminism where the goal is sort of lean in and get the men's job, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. And, and so um, uh, Anne Lewis, the filmmaker who, uh, she was assistant filmmaker here and went on to other films, she's, she sees that moment when she pulls the gun out of her bra, she says that's, that was the same time when some people were burning their bras. And mm-hmm. she says, I don't know which is the most liberated thing to do. Yes. Um, yeah. right, so, right, right, right. you know, I think we have to hear that and yeah. not put, we, there's a danger of falling into a kind of liberal feminism that sees just moving into paid labor as, as, and, right, and I, as I, the goal. And, and actually what the thing that was so, again, important and moving and real uh, was their sense of I'm doing this to to get power, I mean, to yes. get some power, to yes. have the power to give my children a better future, yeah. to have the power to send my kids to school, to have the power. I mean, they talk about, I want a contract. I mean, I thought that yeah. was an incredible moment. Yeah. Um, I want a contract because, and then, you know, it's not because I want the job. I want the contract because I want to do the work I need to do for my family. It, it was quite an amazing and it, it's striking that the, when the women were talking about what they were fighting for, they listed more things than the men did. They yeah. talked a lot about the health. They talked about the portal-to-portal pay, which means that the men are paid from the time they leave, leave the mouth of the mind. To, um, and uh, they talked, they are just acutely aware of the burden of illness. And, you know, they, it's that care work. Yeah. So this is a care work issue. They had to take care of their fathers as they were dying. Yeah. And, um, well, that was one theme I wanted to hear a little bit or talk a little bit more about. Um, it's uh, really kind of, again, embedded in the story. Um, and I think of it as a story of plunder in this case. Yeah. There's, of course, the plunder um, that is uh, of their labor. There's wage theft. There's every kind of theft. But it's also a plunder of their bodies, 
uh, with the story of, of Black Lung. You hear that from the very beginning. We open with a song sung by a man who obviously has lived the song that he is singing about. He talks about his knees. He talks about every part, his skin, every part of his body, and then he gets to the breathing, yeah. the kind of air that you're breathing. What doesn't quite come through is that this is also a plundering of the land. Mm-hmm. And you kind of mm-hmm. made reference to this before. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think it wasn't there at that exact moment? Uh, you know, was it on the horizon? You know, why don't we kind of hear a little bit more of that in, the, in this story, uh, in some and, of these songs yeah. and in some of the... Yeah, and it's, that's a tricky question. There was the beginning of, um, of, of various movements, especially people, not so much in Harlan County, because Harlan was so dominated by deep mining, but in neighboring counties, um, Kentucky had this, uh, uh, the, the legal title to, um, you could have legal title to coal under the ground through a broad, broad form deed, which meant that if you owned the coal, you could, do, you could strip mine the land, even if somebody else owned the property. Mm. So there's a very, I forget the year, but there's a very uh, iconic moment when Widow Combs, again, a woman, mm. so mm. often it's women mm-hmm. at the forefront, refused to be moved from her house when they were stripping her, you know, her family land, and they carried her off uh, bodily. And that photo was carried all across Kentucky, and that became the basis for the fight against the broad form deed. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there was also a really big uh, participatory study of, um, led by Highlander Center, which is mm-hmm. an imp- important player here down in Tennessee, which was a um, popular education radical training center for community organizing and labor organizing, where many of the civil rights leaders um, were, uh, went for, for training and inspiration. And... Um, they were they helped organized a community based study of land ownership mm. that from mm. that came multiple grassroots organizations Kentuckians for the mm. Commonwealth Save Our, mm. Save Our Cumberland Mountains was strengthened by that so it was an era when the um, there was a kind of springing up from the labor movement and then the growing environmental justice movement mm-hmm. um, new institutions at the time when the union was increasingly threatened, and folks were losing that as a as a local um, mm-hmm. organization, you know, kind mm-hmm. of platform f- for this. Um, there's some there's some wonderful writing about the leadership in the envir- Appalachian environmental justice movement. Um, Shannon Bell has written a book called "Our Roots Are Strong as Ironweed," and it's she collected a lot of oral histories of the women leaders who predominate in many ways. And she <clears throat> does a kind of symbolic analysis, and she shows that they thought of their fight to save the mountains, to save the forest, to save the waters, first of all, as very much connected with bodily health, mm. but as an extension of being a wife and a mother. Mm. So I highly recommend that as a look at that kind of feminism. Yeah. Well, you brought up Highlander, so that... that um reminds me that one of the things that comes through so powerfully uh, in this film is the, the role of music, song, yeah. this kind of... I think y- yesterday in our conversation you referred to it as a kind of a blues 
threading throughout all of this, but um, uh, Florence Reese gets up in this gravelly voice that makes the rendition more powerful um, and sings this song that uh, many of us, I didn't realize that it actually came from Harlan County, that, that, that Which Side Are You On, that famous labor anthem that I think partly via Highlander also became the civil rights yeah. anthem. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but, uh, so, so I wanted to just uh, talk a little bit about the role of music and song, uh, the role it plays not just in, in movement building, uh, generally speaking, but also in storytelling uh, in, this, in this case. And, and the incredible creativity of people creating these forms, which would, could carry these really complex experiences in very condensed and powerful ways. Mm-hmm. So the story about Florence Reese writing that, that song is that she's 12 years old mm-hmm. when she wrote it. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, that's the story. And she, uh, her, her dad was on strike. Um, and and I, I want to say, first of all, that this, this is the creativity of Florence Reese and the whole musical tradition behind her. But it also is very important that Alan Lomax was there to record it. Mm-hmm. And it's very important for people... Um, in media studies and all, to, the, the role of documentarians in this is just crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, Nimrod Workman, same thing. Just a guy sitting on the porch, and I forget who recorded him, but somebody was, you know, driving by and heard this voice with that spiritual haunting quality, and recorded him. And of course, Hazel Dickens. Who um, so the, the people in this film are just legends of um, roots music, mm-hmm. and um, just to carry this forward to the present, um, I was involved in a participatory community-based uh, assessment of music, local music in uh, it was actually in Pike County, which is two, uh, two counties up from here. And we were, and so the community folks would go out and document local music um, because they wanted to use it as a document that this was really something important as a basis for economic development. You know, there's a different kind. It's not coal. We're going to have a different kind of economic development using our cultural assets. And so we mapped where the question was: Where does music thrive in Pike County? And so we put together these maps, and of course, because of the problems of land ownership, there are very few venues. Mm. And it was like there were all these sort of pop-up places, mm-hmm. like some guy at night would let the Arby's be used for, mm. you know. And so the, 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 mm. the music sort mm. of thrives almost in a kind of guerrilla yeah. way in many ways, porch music. And, um, or, I mean, I... I like the, the, the concept of the commons, which you've made in a yeah. really important part of your work. Sometimes the commons emerges in unexpected spaces. Ex- yeah. 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 So, Despite w- all the commercialization, too, which is the other side of this. Yes. Um, I think, um, I, I know people here are going to have a lot of questions for you, and I'd love to open it up. Thanks for a great talk already, discussion. Uh, Alice, you just brought up the commons, and I know Betsy, you're really interested Mm -hmm. in that. So I was thinking about the relationship between the commons Mm -hmm. and community 
that emerges here in this incredible way. And the way that that relationship gets completely turned around, split up, destroyed by the triangulation of capital, state, and trade unions. And if you could speak to that a little bit more, drawing on this film. Yes, and in some ways that would be a criticism of this film because so much of the focus is on livelihoods as at the, in the point of production, right? Um, and yet, I think that many of the environmental justice movements... So, as the challenge is to connect the care of the land and, and livelihoods and in many ways, um, we ha- I think that there's been a breakdown in the capacity of, say, left and justice movements in this country to withstand the sort of American ideology that would uh, oppose jobs versus environment. Um, and in, you know, in the late 1990s, there was a kind of resurgence of a, of a regional movement to fight mountaintop removal. And much of that was, um, that was a complicated struggle because mostly people were fighting within the states and the state you know, environmental regulations were so um, in, in, the, in the grip of, of the coal industry. Um, and so people were desperately trying to connect with the national environmental movement in the, in the 1990s, and then beginning, say, 10, uh, 15 years ago. Um, and this culminated in, a, in a, uh, an action called Appalachia Rising in 2010, when a number of us got arrested in front of um, the White House, um, and it was against mountaintop removal. And if you listen to the language that people were using in that, in that effort... It was to protect the land to have some kind of holistic development that didn't split jobs and environment. And um, I don't think... I think part of the problem is at the national level that we have a split in um, more urban-based movements that tend to still are too much in the grip of this idea that we're protecting nature as wilderness and not nature as sort of co-producing livelihoods with us. And so as we now, Lycan is trying to, well, we are doing, we're doing another phase of the Appalachian land study to document um, this feudal level of inequality Mm. because Mm -hmm. the, the... the, the, the corporations are going into bankruptcy, so this land is going to be available. In several of the conversations I've here, had here on campus, we don't know how to have a, have a conversation about what land reform could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, could, and many people, the younger activists say, why, why can't we have some commons? Why can't some of these mountains that are now corporate-owned become commons where local people have use rights and and we have a different legal structure, and we don't know how to go about having that conversation in the, in the context of American sort of political philosophy about private property. 
Although, I mean, I think you could argue that it's not necessarily American political philosophy. It's the decimation of the part of American political philosophy that yeah. actually has a sense of the public, has a sense of the commons, actually has a sense of the need to have a civic infrastructure that's available to everyone. I mean, that didn't disappear by itself. Uh, it seems to me it's connected to some of the things that happen in the aftermath of this strike and the unionization campaign, which is that the, the unions, too, become decimated yeah. and, and, and disappear. And part of the resource curse in Appalachia, of course, is that beca- because the, the, the land and minerals were so radically undertaxed, um, and when public revenues came in, they came in and kind of boom and bust. And anytime you have a boom and bust in public revenues, you tend to have corruption. You don't have wise use of mm-hmm. the funds. Um, the, what the result was that, 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 that you have a, a withered public services, schools, hospitals, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so roads, public water systems, sewage that... Um, um, a third of the people in Brookside at the time of the strike didn't have running water in their house. And nobody I like that had line. sewage. I like that line about when, when, we, when we win this strike, we're going to have a big old bathtub with a yeah. lot of running hot water. <laughs> I think there are some other questions. That... I was wondering if you could um, reflect a little bit, kind of go back to what you were saying about music. Uh, in the end, and I thought of it, th- thought of this for two reasons. Uh, one was um, Alice's concern about African Americans in the film, mm-hmm. which I also shared. But I, where it struck me in a kind of subtle way is the African American musician. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in 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 the conversation that just preceded, uh, uh, you know, as as I was thinking about this, in the ruin and the debris of that industrial kind of landscape, I'm struck by how much music humanizes. Yes. Uh, the yes. actors in the film and how much yes. music that kind of roots yes. um, you know Appalachian Mountain music the way it's redefined the American songbook the way uh, bluegrass today is played by in working class bars um, mm-hmm. you know in the limestone you know mm-hmm. earlier limestone mining outside Louisville Kentucky or uh, mm-hmm. Rockford Illinois I mean these, these are places I'm familiar with and I've heard the music there and it is music definitely inspired by this moment so what seems to have lived on is the music. Mm-hmm. And if you could uh, reflect on the music in the film and also in your life, how you've seen that kind of working class cultural practice be an archive of some of the things we are worried about or talking about. Oh, that's a great question. Um, the, it, it, it's complicated because, like, take the case of bluegrass. Mm. Um, Many people hear bluegrass and they think, oh, this is kind of ancient music, right? You know, and it's, it's, it's kind of identified more with white mountain people in, in some people's popular ima- imagination. Well, in, in fact, there's been some wonderful studies of this because, of course, the, the banjo is very mu- much, originally it's from Africa, and it was, um, so there was a kind of a, a commons that was cross-racial in music um, from like the late 19th century on. And Bill Monroe, when he kind of created that unique, what he called the high lonesome sound Mm -hmm. of bluegrass, Mm -hmm. 
that was a moment when he said, I want to make a music that sounds ancient, you know? So this... It's pe- manufactured uh, and, ancientness. <laughs> and, 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 and you do feel in this film that when people mm. tell stories, it's, it's the, the history from one generation and the passing on, it's very personalized, mm. you know? That, that sort of those lineages and the oral culture that carries that on is, is, has, is crucial. But having so many people packed into these industrial sites, the coal camps, also gave, gave a certain population density. But the other factor is from uh, the, the, there were about 72,000 people living in Harlan in, in 1950 before the wave of mechanization, and now it's down to, um, it, it, you know, it's just the population has collapsed. Those people moved to Detroit and, um, and Cincinnati, so there was a vast out-migration from the mountains uh, of this music that was already pretty complicated. So there were very complicated migration routes to the music and influences coming back in. Um, but then, of course, there was when Nashville started to take off, and you know, country music moved from the Ryman Auditorium into these mega complexes. And like so much of the religious sensibility, in the 80s it was targeted by um, mm-hmm. a certain kind of national conservative. Well, you, and then it became appropriated as part yeah. of this, this sort of stereotype culture, culture machine. Yeah, because it it was appropriated by those saying that this is the 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 music of at least white patriotism, if not yeah, yeah, if not other kinds of and white so that you know the multiracial and mm-hmm. multicultural roots have gotten kind of obscured. But music is throughout uh, you know political events now. Music is central, and art too. There's some great political art. One of my favorites is um, in, in the mountaintop removal struggle is where artists made uh, um, graves for the streams that had been killed. And that, that's pretty powerful. Yes. The question is actually about the, about the documentarian's role in all of this, because it's such a, a, a vivid thing. I was, I was really struck uh, that... Neither the sheriff nor the foreman made any objection at all to having a camera this far from their face. You know, they, they had to be really used to those people by this time. And the, but there's got to be a backstory somewhere, because they didn't just start by being cooperative. No. I've, so how does a documentarian achieve that? And what's the story that we're missing here about about that action. And I'm not saying that, that, that they should have foregrounded themselves in, in the film, but I want to know what's going on. Mm. Yeah. Because that's, that's part yeah. of how, how the story gets told, is yeah. leaving that piece out. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's related to something. On one hand, one wants to foreground that this is the story, you know, this is uh, the Scott family's story. This is the, their story. This yes. is their story, yes. and they're telling it, right? But there are moments in the, f- in the film when you become aware that there are other players there. 
And while you don't want to foreground those folks, because then it sounds like they're the ones that are the source of the creativity, but um, it, it, for instance, do you remember the time when it was up at High Splint, when, which is a kind of steep valley kind of place. It was a dangerous place to be having this, this picket line. And um, it, it looked like this might be the time for the shootout, and you hear a woman screaming. Yes. Um, that woman actually is Marilyn, I forget her last name, but she's a, one of the lawyers that was part of the black lung struggle. So she's, mm. she's an outsider. Mm. Um, and they had grabbed her, and um, she just said, I, I, the only thing I could think of is scream bloody murder. Um, so there, it, the fact that you had these outsiders there um, did create, again, a kind of space that, that supported what the people were doing. Um, but it took a long time for people to trust them enough to, to be that close. They spent about three years there. Mm. And um, at first, n- nobody would... Th- who, who would feel comfortable <laughs> with the people this much filming in, yeah. in you know, yeah, I wouldn't have zoom want... lenses or anything like that to, to yeah. get those close-ups. But, I mean, I think one, one of the things Paul was bringing up, though, was that Barbara Koppel was able to walk up to the window to the man with a gun, to the foreman with a gun, <laughs> who had shown himself to be ready to use it. Um, I mean, I love that exchange where she says, you know, yeah, I'm with the, the United Press or something like that. But, um, but she's also able to go up when, at this high moment of confrontation with the, with the sheriff there. I mean, that feels a little bit dangerous. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, we don't expect you to have the answer to this, but it is quite striking that... Uh, and and it, this could be... Um, this also could be the, their arrogance. It could be the arrogance of the people who had the guns and the power who are saying, I don't have to be afraid of your camera, you know, you little lady. <laughs> I mean, well, that could have been going on, too. Well, that, that is part of it, because when they arrived there, that you know, this was sort of post-60s, right? So Jerry Johnson said he's a young minor that's not featured much, but he's very thoughtful in this 2004 film that Ann Lewis did. He said, when they arrived, they looked poorer than we were. Mm-hmm. And so people were saying, who are these hippies that have just come up in our valley? And people didn't want, I mean, they were friendly, but they didn't want to, you know, talk to them and be interviewed. <laughs> and especially the Scott women, uh, Lois Scott, the mm-hmm. woman, you know, the, the real ringleader, she was saying, don't mess with these people. And of course, she was also the one aware that the clerk's son was filming everybody. So, you know, the, 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 that was part of the worry. Um, and so Barbara Koppel sat down with her and had a heart-to-heart. And she said, okay, if you're going to do that. And so I think that it was partly that there were key leaders who said, this is, this is really going to help us. Yeah. And then the fact that they were able to get, they were totally, the, 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 that scene in the courtroom is in, in, the, in the county seat. And the, the, the police and everybody knew that they did not want that camera in there. Mm-hmm. So they were physically prevented from being in the camera. And they actually put a wire on one fellow. And then somebody just kicked up, opened the door, and they were shooting from a very precarious mm-hmm. angle. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for the great insights you brought, and thank thank you for your questions. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.